Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you caused this passage of Scripture to be written uh, for you to want to say these words to us, words that are so greatly encouraging uh, and so assuring, uh, words that Christians through the ages have loved and cherished and, and put their hopes on. And we pray that that would be no different today, that these very words would be words that encourage us, that we would cherish, that we would set our hopes on that would shape our lives now into the day of glory when you take us home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for those of you who've been around uh, for the past couple of weeks, uh, last week in particular, we, we, we started to look at life in the Spirit. Right? And we saw last week, as we looked at the beginning of chapter 8, that life in the Spirit is basically a description of the normal Christian life. Because every single believer, every single Christian, has been given the Spirit to dwell in them. But we also saw last week that the normal Christian life isn't very normal at all, is it? Because this normal Christian life experience is a life of transformation. It is extraordinary, in fact. We saw last week that this life in the Spirit as the children of God uh, is a life of transformation from condemnation to no condemnation. Uh, it is to be no longer uh, controlled and enslaved to the flesh, but to have the indwelling Spirit which also means that we now have the power to be able to say no to sin and to live a godly life. And I'm going to be best of all, at the end of uh, last week's passage, in verse 14 to 17, we saw that being led by the Spirit, having the indwelling Spirit, means we are children of God, brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing, right? The normal life in the Spirit as the children of God is an extraordinary life. But one thing that we didn't talk about, that I ignored for the moment last week, was verse 17. Uh, have a look at verse 17. Uh, if we're led by the Spirit and we're children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. See, right at the end there, there's this idea, this topic of suffering is introduced. And we see in verse 16 and 17 this deep connection between the Spirit Sonship and suffering. All right? Can you see it? Spirit, sonship, and suffering. In the Spirit, we are children of God, provided we suffer with Christ. Now, suffering is very clearly seen here and taught here as the experience of life in the Spirit. It's the experience of every single child of God. That's kind of a funny thing to say, isn't it? Because... This suffering and, and being in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, being empowered by the Spirit doesn't seem to fit together. And in fact, suffering is something that often confuses us as believers, and it confuses and stumbles the unbeliever, doesn't it? For many people teach uh, that Christians will never suffer. Maybe you've heard that, that Christians shouldn't suffer. They teach that life in the Spirit is this constant uh, experience of kind of a giddy happiness, it is to expect victory over all the problems in your life, which means no suffering. They make it seem as if, if you are a suffering, struggling Christian, there is a problem with your faith. It's because you don't have enough faith, you don't believe enough, that's why you suffer and you struggle. Some people teach that. Now, other Christians, when we face suffering, we seem to be so negatively impacted by it. So much suffering we face that we feel like we want to give up on God. We want to give in to the troubles and just say, well, 
How can I believe in this God who doesn't seem to, to want to fix my problems? Right? Suffering as Christians can lead people away from God, it seems, sometimes. Now, many unbelievers we've met, maybe ourselves included here in this room, point to suffering in the world as evidence that there isn't a God. Right? You know, you've heard the question, right? If, if there really was a good God, how could he allow suffering and evil in this world? They see it's incompatible. How can there be a God who's good? if you allow suffering and evil in this world. Now, it's so vital that we understand suffering, especially as Christians, we need to understand suffering is part of being in the Spirit, part of being a children of God, part of being a brother of Jesus Christ. It comes with it, the certainty of suffering. And we need to be able to understand that. Why? Why is it like that? Why is it that even as Christians we suffer, let alone being in this world? And so that's what we're going to see here, right? Paul expands on that. Why is it that he introduced this topic of suffering for the life of, of Christians? And what does he say about that? He tells us that this present suffering is there for a reason. It's to give us hope for a future glory. It is to show us what the Spirit is doing in helping us in the present. And he, as he finishes this chapter, he finishes it with this celebration of assurance that we can have in spite of suffering, in the midst of suffering, through suffering, there's this amazing assurance that God's plan is being done, your plan, plan for you and for me, as well as God's love is guaranteed. That's what we're going to see this morning, this afternoon. Sorry. Let's look at verse 18, right? It's a beautiful verse. It starts off this section, really. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, right from the start of this discussion about suffering... Paul makes it crystal clear where present suffering fits in. Right? He says, it is nothing compared to the future glory that is to come. Right? He says, it's incomparable. I don't want to talk about it. Right? It's so much uh, a, a, a ridiculous comparison that I'm not going to say anything. There's no need. The, the amount of present suffering compared to the future glory, incomparable. I'm not going to talk about it. Well, thankfully, Paul does talk about it in another passage, right? 2 Corinthians. So let's go there for a second and see what he says. I can bring that up. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. See, life in the Spirit as the children of God comes with it, the certainty of suffering. But no matter how severe and heavy this suffering may seem in the present, what does Paul say? It is light and very short compared to the glory, the weight and the length of glory that is to come. Now, what is this glory that Paul is talking about? Right? What is glory? Now, the word glory, as you've probably heard a few times already, is the idea of weightiness, heavy, right? Substantial, having great substance. And we're talking about Christian glory, we're talking about God's glory. And we, we can kind of get why God is glorious, isn't it? Because he is, he, His presence and His goodness and His being is weighty, the weightiest of them all. He's, uh, he, the fact that He's eternal and, and, and infinite and, and divine and incorruptible, He's weighty, right? He's, he's full of substance. But the best way we see glory in the Bible is when he reveals it in full through his son. 
And when the Bible talks about when Jesus came, he revealed God's glory as of the only Son belonging to the Father. A glory which he reveals through his life, his death, his resurrection. But amazingly, a glory that he shares with us. So that one day, when we, when we, when we see the glory of God, is to basically see God in his Son. When we behold and experience the glory of God, is to become more like Jesus. To become who God created and saved us to be. But it's in the future, right? And because this future is so weighty and eternal, it makes our present sufferings comparatively light and very short. And some of you here, you do weights, it's obvious, right? You guys do weights, the guns are amazing, right? You take a 10 kilogram dumbbell and you do 20 reps, it starts to feel pretty heavy, okay? Try that, right? Look for a 10 kilogram rice bag later and try to lift it 20 times, it's pretty heavy, right? At the end, you're like suffering. But if I actually go lift my car, well, 10 kilogram bag of rice is nothing compared to lifting a car, right? Now, 20 years, some of you are 20 years old, some of you are not quite there yet. Pretty long time, your whole life. 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, some people in the first service, 80 year olds, in fact, can seem like a very long time. Can you imagine 80 years ago, 1938? Man, what happened then, right? Seems like a very long time, but what is that compared to eternity? Mathematicians, what is 80 divided by infinity? So, so short as to be almost like zero, isn't it? Infinitesimally short amount of time that we go through suffering in this life. Now, as light and momentary our suffering may be, the reality is we still have to go through it, right? I mean, it's good to say that in comparison to the weight of eternal glory, that the momentary suffering is light and short, but we still have to face it, correct? And once we face it, it's painful. And this passage speaks about a groaning that happens, so much pain that we feel. And we are longing for that future glory as we wait for it to come. And so, and so Paul also described that, right? That, that longing that creation and Christians have as we wait for that glory to come. Right? Creation and Christians. Now, as you look at this passage in verse 19 onwards, Paul personifies creation as like a person who is waiting and groaning as they wait. Now, from our history books and with our access to all these current affairs that we can know what's going on in the world and through our own experience of life, we know this world is broken. Yes? If you just stop playing your computer games for a minute, stop enjoying your movies, and stop enjoying your uni so much or your work life or your boyfriend or girlfriend or your family and you think about what the world's like, we are often struck by how broken and decrepit this world is. We look at it and we enjoy what's good about it, the sights, the beautiful beaches, the mountains, the activities, the relationships. But then we can see, also see how it's meant to be perfect. And yet in every aspect of life, there's brokenness. And we can ask the question, why? We should ask the question, why? Maybe you do ask the question, why? Why? Why in this good world is there death and disease? Why is there destruction? Why is there deterioration? Why is there decay? Why is there all these D words, right? All to do with death. And the Bible tells us so clearly why. You look at it, it says, God has subjected this creation to futility. Verse 20, right? God is the one who's done this. He has subjected this creation to futility. Verse 20, God has put this creation in bondage to decay. Now, why has God done that? 
Like, is he just some big bully? You know, is he, does he take pleasure in making our life difficult? Is that why God does it? Some people think that, don't they? But if you go back to the beginning of the human story as to how all this came to be, we know that it's not God's fault. It is ours. Go back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 to 3, and read that God created this world good, very good, without suffering, without sin, without problems. But when Adam and Eve, when our first human beings, when we sinned, we brought in destruction and death and judgment into the world. And because this creation was created for humans to live in, when, God, when, when, when Adam and Eve, when humans rejected God, and we were cursed for that rejection, we were judged for it, the creation in which God gave us also kind of went downhill with us. It copped the curse along with us. The fate of creation is tied to the fate of humans because creation is created for humans to live in and enjoy. When humanity fell, creation fell with it. And so a big part of our experience of suffering in this world is because of the brokenness of this cursed creation that is caused by our sinfulness, by our rejection of God. But you see, futility and bondage to decay is not God's final purpose, right? Judgment is not God's final word. What does it say here in the end of verse 20? He says that God subjected the world to futility in hope. Right? In hope. The final word is for us to hope for a redemption that he will bring, for the creation to look forward in hope from, from a redemption from this bondage that God has placed us under. And that will happen one day. But it will only come on the coattails of humanity's redemption, of Christians' redemption. Verse 19. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. And in verse 21, creation will have a freedom from suffering when the children of God obtain the freedom and glory. Right? Creation's downfall was connected to man's downfall in the same way creation's redemption is, is, is linked to our redemption. But in the meantime, this world is broken and we feel the effects of that. Now Paul moves on from creation's groans to the Christian's groans, verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, it's very clear that Paul is uh, referring explicitly and especially to Christians, right? To those who have the Spirit. Because this whole entire passage is about life in the Spirit, life as the children of God, those who trust in Jesus and those who love God. For us, who are in the Spirit, who are children of God, we groan in our present suffering. Now, what is this suffering that causes Christians to groan? Now, this, this, the wider context of this passage makes it pretty clear, right? The first one and the most clear one is the, the suffering, the groaning that we feel from the brokenness of this world. Uh, and that's not just a, a Christian thing. Uh, Non-Christians will, will, will suffer in the same way. A world subjected to futility, a world that is cursed on so many levels, in so many ways that causes us pain. It fills us with grief and uncertainty and anxieties. That's number one, right? The suffering that we feel in this broken creation. Secondly, we groan as we suffer in our fight against sin. And that's from the previous passage, right? The first half of chapter 8. You remember last week when Paul talked about putting sin to death? It's a very violent way of describing things, right? It's the idea of executing sin as if sin was a, a criminal deserving the death penalty. And he says, go and get it done. 
put sin to death. Putting sin to death is messy, painful, and heart-wrenching business. Fighting sin is not easy. Like if you've really tried to fight sin, you will know what I mean. Right, trying to resist that temptation to sin. I know some of you have tried very hard, sometimes even for years, to overcome certain sins in your life. For, for guys, the, the, the constant issue of sexual immorality and, and pornography and the temptations that, that, that holds for you every single night. For other people, it's a temptation not to be bitter, not to have sharp tongues. Others is the is the, the, the the sin of not wanting to, to make an idol of, of, of our work or our studies or a relationship. Fighting sin is pretty much like an addict trying to not take up that next cigarette, to not take that next shot of whiskey, to not pick up that syringe to have another shot. Because sin, as we've heard last week, is like a like a master that has control over us. And we are like addicted to sin. And to say no to that hurts, doesn't it? You know, you've seen addicts on TV, maybe. Or maybe you're an addict yourself. And the withdrawals that come from saying no. The, the, the pain you feel in not giving in. That's kind of like what it is to fight sin. And the suffering that comes with that. And not only that, it's hard to say no to sin. But it's also painful when we say yes to it. When we succumb and, and, and we fall and we give in. You know, you give up or you give in and then the guilt comes, doesn't it? It floods into your heart, the regret, the shame. You know, the fact that you know that even though you love God, you've hurt God. You've hurt other people, you've hurt yourself. If you care at all about fighting sin and, and you stuff up, when you stuff up, it su- you suffer, don't you? Because it, it means something to you to want to please God. It hurts when you stuff up. Second thing, we've grown in our struggle against sin. The third thing we groan against is with the same way that Jesus suffered. Have a look at verse 17. Back in verse 17, remember, we are children of God, which makes us co-heirs with Christ, which makes us brothers and sisters of Jesus. And it says that we will suffer in the same way our brother Jesus suffered. And how did he suffer? His main suffering was to be rejected by an unbelieving world. Right? When he came into this world, he was rejected and persecuted for being God's son, for doing God's mission, for proclaiming to a world that they are sinful and rebellious. And by saying that every single person needs to be forgiven by God. People didn't like that. And they rejected him and they persecuted him and they put him on the cross. These are the present sufferings that Christians face. And indeed our suffering will exceed that of anybody else in this world. Because not only do we have to face the groans of this broken creation we will grow in our fight against sin and in being persecuted as Christ's brothers. Now, as we face these things, it is right for us to groan inwardly, to feel the pain, the trauma and the weight, the worry and the anxiety, the sadness of it all. It is okay if you're a Christian to groan in pain. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Don't let anyone tell you that the spirit-filled person doesn't suffer. Because people will tell you that spiritual people don't suffer. They'll tell you that there's always victory over everything in this life. But that's not what Paul's saying. The spirit-filled person, the child of God, suffers. They groan. 
Don't let anyone tell you that the children of God don't get hurt. The Son of God got hurt real bad. Right? Don't, don't let anyone tell you that these are all signs that you're out of God's will, that you don't have the Spirit, that you're not victorious. Don't let anyone tell you that. Now, on the other hand, don't ever let these present sufferings overwhelm you. Right? Don't ever let it cause you to despair and give up. We understand why it happens. We know what's going to come in the future. Light and momentary is the reminder that we need. You see, just as creation looks forward in hope to redemption, so also the children of God, we look forward in hope of our redemption. Now let's uh, see what, more about this hope. Okay, look at verse 23, this hope that Paul wants us to know about. We ourselves were the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. See that we, we groan with hope. And we have to remember that Christian hope isn't the same as normal human hope, which is wishful thinking. Christian hope is certain future, based on certain past and a certain present. What is the certain past that Christian hope is based on? The death and resurrection of Jesus. It's already happened. What is the present certainty for those who trust in Jesus? We are justified and reconciled to God. What is our future hope that is certain? We will be saved. We will be glorified. Because it's already happened. We'll be reconciled to God. Reconciled to God. The future hope is certain. Now, in this hope, Paul says, we are to wait eagerly and patiently. Now, if you're a person who likes words, you will know there's an interesting mix of words. For eagerness means, like, can't wait. And impatiently means, can wait, right? You know, eagerly means, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, I'm desperate for it to come. And it's kind of like a child, when you tell them, you know, after dinner, you can have ice cream. And they're like, can't wait. They're like bouncing. And then they eat their food really quickly, unless you're Zoe. And then you never eat quickly, no matter what, right? Or it's like an adult, you know, waiting for that uh, big holiday that's about to come up. I know some of you have been on big holidays recently. Uh, I haven't been on a big holiday for ages, but in 43 days, uh, 19 hours and 40 minutes, uh, I have an app on my phone, right, that tells me when my trip to Japan is coming up. Faith and I are going on a trip, just the two of us, uh, to celebrate our 40th together. And I'm counting down. I'm eager, right? I'm, I'm, I have all these things on my YouTube page of 10 things to do in Tokyo, 10 things to do in Shibuya, 10 street foods to eat, right? And uh, I have to say, okay, chill, 43 days, 19 hours, 40 minutes to go, right? Eager. Eagerness shows how much you're looking forward to something, right? How much you want that thing to happen because it's good. On the other hand, patience. Patience is knowing that it might just take some time. It's going to take a while. And, you, and being patient is being able to function well as you wait for that thing to happen. And as you wait, you're not grumbling, you're not complaining, you're not frustrated, and you're not angry. Eagerness and patience. 
Is that the kind of hope that we have of the future, of glory that is to come? Is that the kind of hope we have in our suffering? Or do you find that when things don't go well, it kills your eagerness? You just become distraught, sien, frustrated, you know, hopeless and despairing. And you forget all about the future, you don't look forward to it anymore. Or does suffering kill your patience? You're complaining and you're upset and you're on edge all the time. As children of God, we have hope that we can eagerly and patiently look forward to. This curious but beautiful mix of being so excited for heaven and for glory, yet knowing that it might take some time, and I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be patient. Now, I've raised to say, right? Especially for a lot of us here who are young, maybe we haven't had a lot of suffering yet. But for those who have suffered, and maybe some of you even in your young lives have suffered a lot, and I know people from the first service have suffered a lot in different ways, saying that we have eagerness and patience and hope is easy, but it's actually really hard when you're in suffering. And God knows this. God knows that in the midst of suffering, we are weak, and we forget all these things, and we can't cope. God knows us, and God helps us. By His Spirit that dwells in us, having this life in the Spirit, the Spirit's helping us through this. Now, what kind of help would you want when you are suffering? First thing we normally pray for when we're suffering is, Spirit, God, take it away, right? Get it out of my life. Not a bad thing to pray for. Second thing we pray for, if we're a bit more spiritual, a bit more for a fight, we say, please give me strength to be able to get through this, right? Either take it away or give me strength. You notice what Paul says the Spirit helps us with? He helps us to pray. Interesting, isn't it? Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You know, one of the things that happens when we are really in the midst of suffering is that we just can't think. Our mind goes blank, our hearts are all over the place. Is that true? Stuff that you, th- you knew when you were calm and things were going well, suddenly you don't know anymore. Suddenly you can't connect anymore. Suddenly you can't live it out anymore. It kind of reminds me of being in the army, really, isn't it? Peacetime training, they call it. Right? They drill you when things are well, peacetime, so that when wartime comes, when you shack cannot think, in the Singapore way of speaking, you can still survive. You can still fight the war. Because they know, right, in stress and in suffering, you're going to mush. You can't think. And that's when we need the Spirit's help. He helps us to pray when we don't know what to pray for. When we've got no idea anymore, right? The truth that we used to know about God, His character and His promises, His plans. We used to know those things when we were well, but when we were suffering, sometimes we go blank. The Spirit's there helping us to pray without words. That's what it says here, right? With groans, in fact. Notice that. The Spirit, the creation groans from its suffering. We groan from our suffering. And the Spirit groans. The Spirit of God. He groans, not because he's suffering, but because he shares in our suffering. He, 
He gets it. He understands. He cares. And he groans by praying to God for us without words. Now, this has got nothing to do with speaking in tongues. Because it's literally without words. There is no sound. Right? To groan uh, without words is basically just to express how painful something is. And the Spirit doesn't need words to communicate with us and with God. Because it's inside us and because He's the mind of God, right? Um, the Spirit is able to intercede for us, pray for us, because dwelling in us, He knows us. The Spirit is able to pray for us exactly what we need because He knows God. Because He is the Spirit of God. There's no words needed, it's not tongue speaking. So in any moment you're suffering, you don't have to worry about whether you need to utter anything, you need to say anything, make any noise. Know for sure that if you're a child of God, the Spirit is interceding on your behalf. And what's he doing? What's he praying for? He's praying for God's will to be done in our suffering. Right? Verse 27 at the end, he intercedes for the saints, for us, according to the will of God. He's praying for God's will to be done. Now, what is that will? That he's praying. What is the Spirit praying? What is God's will that he's praying for? And this is where we, get, we start getting into the deep, deep assurance that we see in the rest of this chapter. These beautiful verses of chapter 28 to 39 is in the context of suffering and the Spirit praying for God's will to be done. Okay, That's what this famous verses context is about. Have a look, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Oh, that's not, that shouldn't be there. Sorry. Okay. Now, what is God's will? What is his plan and purpose for your life? Now, last night and the night before in YF, I heard that statement, right? Figuring out God's will and plan for me many times because we're doing Ecclesiastes and talking about, you know, uh, how this world is, mean- life in this world is meaningless. And then when things go wrong, what do we do? And then a lot of people are saying, well, we're trying to figure out whether it's God's will for us uh, and what his will is through all this meaninglessness and all these things that don't work out. Right? We, we ask that question many times, right? I wonder whether this is God's plan for me. I wonder whether He's brought this obstacle so that uh, he can show me his plan. Right? Maybe I'm out of God's plan. I need to come back into God's plan. We've all asked that kind of questions before, I know. Especially when things aren't going well. Well, what is God's will? Verse 28. To work all things for the good of those who love God. What is God's will? It is to work all things for the good of for those who love God. Basically, if you're a Christian, God's will is to work all things, including our suffering, for our good. Now, what is our good? Very important question, right? What is God's good for us? Now, the best thing that God had for us at the beginning when he created us is to be made in his image. The best good is to be created in the image of God. And then we sin, and then we we destroy that image. And then we see that God's good now is to save us and to re-transform us or to conform us into the likeness of His Son, to restore the glory of God, the image of God, back into our lives, which is exactly what verse 29 says. He foreknows and predestines us to be 
conform to the image of his son. To be in the image of God's son is to become more like Jesus. In our holiness, just as he is holy, like God is holy. In our love for God, just as the, the son has perfect love for the father. To have love for others in the same way that Jesus had love for the others. Just to live like Jesus did with the right, same attitudes and behaviors that is truly good life, the best life. This is God's purpose for us. To work all things, including our suffering, for our good, which is to become more like Jesus. This is God's plan A for Christians. And it also happens to be plan B and plan C and D and E and F all the way to Z and any other alphabet that you can use. This is God's clearly stated, divinely revealed plan. You don't need to ask. I'm serious about that. You don't need to ask. When you are suffering and you're wondering whether you're out of God's will or in God's will, He's saying that He's working all things for your good, to make you more like Jesus. So what you should ask is, how can I respond to this situation to make me more like Jesus? That's God's will for your life. Right? When, when I fail my exam, how can I respond to this that makes me more like Jesus? To keep hoping for heaven, to keep responding in a godly way. Yes, to feel pain and suffering because, you know, things are bad. Remember, being a child of God doesn't mean we are immune from suffering. You know, when things, when things go wrong, when you, when you have news of cancer or death of a loved one, when a business venture fails, when a relationship breaks, when you've done something that you regret, when someone hurts you, the question is, I wonder what God's will is for my life in this situation. No, the question is, I know what God's will is. To use all of these situations for my good to become more like Christ. So the question is, how can I respond in such a way that I'll be more like Christ? But the amazing thing is that we are told that God is doing that work in us. It's not just us who has to strive to be more like Christ. God is working in us, in all things, to make us more like Christ. Now, it isn't just in our present suffering that God is doing this. God is fulfilling His will in our lives through all of history. This is an amazing chain that is told us in verse 28, uh, 29 and 30. Right, this amazing five words that there's this unbreakable chain of what God is doing from the beginning of time to the end of time. Right, follow with me, right? First, for, for those whom God foreknew, foreknew, oops, uh, he predestined. Uh, and then for those that he predestines, verse 30, he calls. And for those he called, he also justified. And for those he justified, he glorified. This is an unbreakable chain. There's a little chain behind there if you can see it. Okay? Unbreakable from one to five. It begins with God's foreknowledge. Now, humans, when we talk about foreknowledge, it just means to know something ahead of time. It's passive. But when the Bible talks about God's foreknowledge, it's a relational word. It's about Him, before time, before the creation of the world even, setting His love on people. Right? It's His desire and His setting of His love on people. It's active. It's relational. And those that God foreknew from the beginning of time, He predestines. He sets our destination Right in the direction of where he wants us to go, to be able to receive his love, really. And for those that he predestines, and when we enter into history, he then calls us with the irresistible call of the gospel. 
Those who get predestined, they will hear the call of the gospel and they'll come in trusting faith to the gospel. And as we know from Romans so clearly, those who receive the gospel are justified, reconciled to God right now, right with God. And the amazing last thing here we see is that we are glorified. And the amazing thing about this word is the tense of the word. Remember in verse 18 that glory is when? Future, right? But yet here in verse 30, he says that we are glorified now. So sure and certain that Paul is of this unbreakable chain that we are already glorified. We might as well be because it's a certainty in the future. Just as we will be glorified, we already are now glorified because this chain can never be broken for those who are in Christ Jesus. In our future, glory is something that we can look forward to. It really, we can. There's an assurance. This is God's will for those who love him. This is God's will, and it is guaranteed. He will bring us to the full likeness and glory of his Son. He will take us there. Now, if that assurance isn't enough, well, then Paul has even more to say to us. And in these last 10 verses of this chapter, he breaks out into the fullest celebration of assurance that ought to comfort anyone facing anything in his life. For a good reason, it is one of the most memorized and quoted and written down scripture in the Bible. It's just beautiful. It's about five questions that have five obvious answers. Sometimes so obvious he doesn't even get to answer it. But it's the bedrock of assurance of God's love. First question he asks is, if God is for us, uh, who can be against us? Oh, come on, all right? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, if you and I really know who God is and what God is like, this question doesn't need any answer, right? If the, the glorious, weighty, most substantial, mighty, powerful God of all creation, of all things, is for us, so on our side, It doesn't need to be said who can come against us. We are secure in God being on our side. No answer needed. Nothing and no one can go against God's purposes and plans for us. Second question. If God has so graciously given us his son, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Because his son is the greatest thing that he can possibly give us. And he's already given us that. It is most precious to God. He is most precious to God. He is the most valuable thing because he's God. And he's already given that to us, given him to us to die for our sins. How will he not also give us everything else he wants to give us to bless us with that's for our good? Questions three and four. Who can bring any accusation against God's elect? Who can condemn? Who can accuse and who can condemn? Can Satan? Can, can sin? Can anyone else in your life? What about yourself? Your own conscience? Can any of these people accuse and condemn us before God? And Paul says, we already know the answer to that. Through the giving of God's Son, through His death for our sin, penalty paid. Through His resurrection, justified, reconciled. Answer is obvious. But it doesn't seem that obvious to us sometimes, does it? 
because sometimes it can feel like the accusations and condemnation will stick. I'm not sure about you guys, but sometimes I have visions of grandeur and I think of myself as Job, right? And I imagine this scene that Job was in, this New Old Testament, this guy called Job, and there's a scene where Satan, the evil one, approaches God in the heavenly places and says, God, do you give me permission to mess up this guy's life to see whether he really trusts in you or not? Right? So sometimes I'm thinking, maybe something happened to me right, in my life, that there's a Satan coming up to God, and then he throws up this big, huge screen in the heavenly wall somewhere, and then he's playing my life in real time. And the evil one's there, rubbing his hands, waiting. And then, wow! That banner... Can you just see what he just did? He was being very unloving to his wife and children. Can you see his thoughts? Right there. Sexual immorality. Maybe it's not me, right? It's you, right? Look at it. Look at her. How bitter is her heart? How much did she just slander her best friend in her mind? And then the evil one says to God, smite him. He deserves it. She deserves it, right? Rebel against your clear command. Calls himself a Christian, calls himself a Christian, and yet is a hypocrite. Doesn't live it out. You should judge and condemn him or her. And then uh, right next to God is Jesus interceding for us. And he says, no. I died for their sins. I've already paid the penalty of their judgment. Not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty is what Jesus is saying to the evil one. Saying that to whoever wants to judge us. Maybe our parents. Like I say, maybe even ourselves. So sometimes the most condemning person is ourselves, isn't it? That sometimes we make ourselves not trust that we are not accused and that we are not condemned. Now, it's a great thing to have a sensitive heart to sin. Some of us are easily grieved by sin, and that's a great thing because we, we take it seriously. But sometimes in our oversensitivity, we start to reject the word of God, that we ourselves cannot even accuse and condemn us because Jesus has already forgiven us. And that might be a word that you need to hear uh, today. The fifth thing, fifth question, final one, and it, takes to, it tops the cake, really, right? Uh, what can separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God shown in Jesus Christ? And Paul lists out in these final few verses all of the possible things in life that might make us even think that can get in the way between us and God, that might take God's love away from us. He begins in verse 35 with all kinds of trouble, right? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, troubling stuff. And then in verse 38, he talks about every kind of power, death and life, angels or rulers, present or future things, high stuff, low stuff, powers of any and every kind, and then he does this catch-all, anything in all of creation, anything and everything you can think of. And we could add to this our own lists the kind of troubles and the kind of powers that you face in your life that might make you even consider that God won't love you anymore. And you add to that list, and then you cross it all off. And you say, no, nothing in all of creation, nothing in all of the spiritual realm, nothing even within my own psyche can separate me from the love of God. 
Because it's already been poured out. By the indwelling spirit, the love of Christ that God has given to us. We know it doesn't mean that we have immunity from suffering under these troubles and these powers. We're not immune from suffering, but we are immune from separation. Not immune from suffering, but immune from separation. And Paul is so sure of this. The way he's written this passage is breathlessly beautiful. It's supercharged with conviction. More than conquerors. It's a crazy phrase, right? Conquer means you can overcome. More than conquerors means what? It, it almost means that you don't even have to overcome because it's, it's, it's like a foregone conclusion. More than conquerors is his belief. It's his cry. It's his celebration. And he wants it to be ours as well. He wants it to be ours as well. You know, when life is good, do these truths matter? Or do you just forget about it? You know, life is good. I'm just going to go my own way. Do these truths matter? When, when suffering comes, do you cling on to these convictions? Do you cry in the same way? Do you have the same belief and celebration and conviction to know that you're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus? Now, the normal Christian life is what we're talking about here, right? It is life in the Spirit as the children of God. Life as a Christian means suffering now, but it is light and momentary compared to the future weight of glory that is to come. The present suffering triggers for us hope, certain hope, but it also triggers the Spirit's help. The Spirit is helping us to know that we are in God's plan A, that His purpose or working his will out into our lives to bring us to glory, to become more like Jesus, is guaranteed and is totally backed by the fact that God's love cannot be taken away from us. And so God is saying to us today, hang on, stay faithful. Don't give in and don't give up. Let's pray. Our gracious God, our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for such words of power that you have given to us today. We pray that this, your spirit living in us would really take these words and bring it to life in us that causes us to erupt in celebration, in conviction, in faith, and to be able to understand what it means to live as a Christian, to have life in the spirit, to be your children, to be not surprised, to be able to be more than conquerors through the sufferings, the trials, the tribulations, the problems of our lives. We pray that we will have a clear picture of the future weight of glory that you have in store for us. We pray that you help us to be convinced and convicted by the fact that you are working out your will in our lives to make us more like Jesus. And we pray that you'll help us to know and, and, and glory in the fact that your love for us cannot be separated. So let us not separate ourselves from you. Let us keep trusting in Jesus. Let us keep holding on. We thank you so much for such words of power and comfort. We pray in Jesus' name.